Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Empowered Leader Podcast. My name is Catherine, and today I am really excited to be releasing part one of a conversation with my dad, Dan Yazzie. Some of you may know I sat down with my dad over Zoom the other day, and it was a really great conversation and just really special for me, honestly, to be able to bring my dad on the podcast, interview him, and just hear a lot of his stories from his career and what he's learned, lessons that he has for folks and and some of the challenges even that he encountered about leadership, about managing people, about all the things. So I just wanted to give you all that little intro and let you know that it's part one of the conversation. So um, tune in for more. And without further ado, let's get into the conversation. Hi, Dad. Thanks for being on The Empowered Leader. Glad to be here. I am excited to chat with you. I know that we have been speaking about different topics and things that you've experienced in your career. And I know personally, I've always really enjoyed having your insight on things. And I know that you're retired now. You have been looking back over the course of your career. So I feel like you're going to have a lot of good insight and wisdom to share with us. So thanks again for agreeing to come on. You're welcome. No problem. (laughs) So for those who don't know you, I'd love if you could Give us a overview of who you are and your career. Okay. Well, I'm an engineer by, by background. I probably have an engineer by personality too. Yeah. <laughs> um, but as time went on, I, I moved from engineering. You know, you know that concept of being promoted to your level of incompetence? No. I started out... <laughs> I started out as an engineer, and then I became a a supervisor of engineers, then I became a manager of engineers, then I Mm -hmm. became a project manager. So I just kept moving up, but it was all with an engineering um, slant. What type of engineering? Well, it was in, I'm in the nuclear, was in the nuclear business, so nuclear power plants, and uh, I'm a mechanical engineer. Um, and I work mostly on the mechanical systems that support operation of the nuclear plant. And I entered my career in right around the time nuclear was stopping its growth. So I spent most of my career not building new plants, but maintaining the existing fleet, which is about a, a hundred plants in this country. Mm-hmm. So I've been all over the country working on different plants from engineering engineering projects for many different plants. And uh, you've also been very, all over the world, right? Well, I did I did have one assignment in France. Yeah, six months. It was great. So, <laughs> yeah, I like to do new and different things. I don't like to keep doing the same thing over and over. So that's one of the things I liked about my career. I got to go you know, do a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, you got to travel and it sounds like you sort of started your career 
as an engineer, then you started managing people and then you became a project manager. Tell me about those transition moments. I didn't do a lot of pre-planning for my career. I just sort of <laughs> went and uh, I went I went along with it, which probably isn't, isn't the right way to do it, but um, I think I enjoyed my career. Um, so when I first started, I was maybe an engineer, maybe four or five years with one company. Then after another four years with another company, then I became a, a manager. And it, it was rather abrupt. There was no preparation. It was just, you are now the manager of this group. Mm. And um, so I kind of learned they, they were, the company did support it in a sense. They sent me to training, but it was on the job learning how to do it. And uh, I don't think I was ever really a great people manager because, <laughs> you know, it, it's hard. It really is hard to, yeah. to be a, a good people manager. Uh, I was really good on issues, technical mm. issues, because <laughs> again, my en- my engineer comes out. Uh, I think at least that's what I thought. I was good with technical issues. Yeah. People, it took a while. In fact, I probably still haven't reached my perfection as far as being good people person. Mm. But uh, but I've been trying. I have tried all through my career to get better. That's one thing I did value is I always strive to learn and get better, yeah. both to, not just technically, but with the management stuff and the people stuff. But it was a struggle. It wasn't didn't come easy to me. Some people, probably you, Catherine, it's being relating to people comes naturally. With me, it was always, what do I do now? <laughs> <laughs> you act, you went back to school for it too, didn't you? Uh, yeah, I went to a, I got a master's in management science. It was like a Shams outline of an MBA, yeah. what I call it. Yeah. <laughs> was, did you find that that was helpful to you when you were learning? Yeah, well, it forced, it forced me to work with, work in groups. A lot of the training, a lot of the courses were group, group projects. And so, yeah, and uh, it helped, it helped. Mm. Yeah. What was, what were some of the harder part? You mentioned just like relating to people. What specifically, maybe what skill sets um, about managing people looking back were some of the harder ones to master for you? I think because I was so focused on the, the work. Yeah. Versus the people. I think my what I probably struggled with the most after, despite many coaching sessions with people trying to help me, <laughs> was it was uh, it was trusting people. It was to yeah. empower, empower people. <laughs> uh, it takes a lot to, for me to not just do it myself, to trust people and to support them and help them get it done right. So I think I got better. I, I, I think I did get better over time, but it didn't come naturally. And uh, I think that's something I could have done a lot better is, as a manager or even just a project manager is to have a little bit more trust in the people and back off, know when to back off and when to jump in. I was yeah. jumping in too much. Yeah, I, I definitely know what you're saying. I think you know what, what you have to do is you have to explain more the job, more the why. Yeah. I used, 
I used to just expect it, here it is, do this, expect it to be done. And I found out that it takes a little more time, you know, and you get why you're doing, why it's important, because it, help, it helps build that sense of, it's, it's a sense of uh, mission. That's, it, it really is important to do this. Here's why yep. we're doing it. Here's why it has to be done by tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I like I, one of my I feel like memories of just you talking about work is just like all your project timelines and just like having things set oh, up. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, we've done some crazy things on timelines, and you know it, it, it's funny because again, um, if a manager or an organization is only is only focused on the deadline, the manager thinks that that's their job. Let's let's focus on the deadline. But it, it can send an unintended message that the deadline is more important than the work. Mm. And um, so you can have quality problems. If you're, if you're so focused on the deadline and that's all your team hears, they don't hear that, well, you have to meet this procedure and it has to have this functionality and, and it, it has to be done right. You can get a product on the deadline, but it's not what you want. Yeah. Not what the cus customer wants. So I, I recognize that. And uh, of course, it, every job is going to be deadlines. So you can't use the deadline as an excuse, or you can't use quality as an excuse to be late for a deadline. Right. Um, or the deadline as an excuse not to have quality. It, you have to, you have to stress that they're both important, and people need to to uh, be accountable to that. And uh, that's a culture. That's a culture that has to grow within the group uh, of what's important. And what I used to think was that you have to meet, you have to balance two things. One, it has to be right. And two, and that might not fit in the, in the millennial lingo. But Your maybe, engineer is coming out strong right now. <laughs> It Your C-style right. personality. <laughs> <laughs> and two, it has to meet the customer's expectation. And what I found out was those aren't always compatible. <laughs> or, okay, or I mean, they're not, you can actually say, well, I did it, it was right, it was perfect, but the customer rejects it mm. because you didn't do what the customer wanted or you didn't understand what the customer wanted. So. I always learned over time that an excellent product is one that has both. It's technically correct and it meets the customer's expectations. And that second part is harder than the first part. Yeah. You know, if you're a trained engineer and you've been doing it for a while, making sure you didn't make a mistake in the math or make a mistake in the assumptions, that's within your bailiwick. Understanding the customer. <laughs> Now, especially if you're like I was doing, we went from project to project to project with different customers. So we could spend a year with one customer and then go to a whole different customer in a different part of the country and have to relearn what they, their expectations are. Yeah. So I thought that was real. That was something that I really struggled with initially because we were making all these projects and then we'd deliver a product and then they'd They'd throw up all over it. You know? <laughs> so we had we had to adjust and learn yeah. over time you know, how to do it right and 
that part of that was really getting close to the customer and making sure you understood what they're looking for. Don't just assume it's the same as what the last guy wanted. <laughs> yeah. Do you have any advice, like how to strike the balance between all those things? Because like to your point, sometimes they can be competing with each other. I think that bal- going back to the balance between how to, how to get an excellent product, defining excellent as being technically correct and meeting customer expectations, both. Yeah. You just, you have to stress both. You have to focus on both and not take shortcuts. And that's a culture. Again, you have to, you have to set that example. Yeah. You know, and, uh, and in the end, you have to make decisions as to what's, what's right. So if the customer is one of the most important things to the customer is hitting this date, which you committed to, but the date is approaching and you can't, make it a quality product that's that you're confident in you got to make those tough decisions have mm-hmm. a sit down with the client explain where you are they may not be happy but in the end um it's something you had to do because you weren't able to balance schedule yeah. the, the customer's expectations with the quality in the time frame that they were expecting it so if you if you have a problem like that you got to communicate it i i've had many mentors and and one, one or more would, would stress that a problem doesn't get better with age. So, yeah. <laughs> right. It's not like wine. <laughs> you know? So, yeah. so you gotta, you gotta hit it. You gotta hit issues, early discovery. What we found was very, very important to stay on track is a questioning attitude by your whole organization. You know, everyone that's part of the process they need to feel comfortable raising questions. Is that right? Uh, what about this? Have you checked that? Because the earlier you can identify and surface a problem, the earlier you can deal with it. So perhaps on, a, on an example where we might've been late to a customer, let's say we had six weeks to do this project and we committed to it. And then we're two weeks out and we're not where we should be. Or well, three weeks out, we're not mm-hmm. where we should be. If the only person who knows that is the person that's behind and he's not communicating that or she, and it's not being raised up to be dealt with, then it might be a week before it's due when it finally gets surfaced to, to the management team that, wait, we're not, we're not where we need to be. So you have to instill that with everybody. They have to have a questioning attitude so they can address these problems and meet that balance of both quality and customer expectations because you're gonna have problems. There's no question you're gonna have problems, but it's how you deal with them that that determines your success. Yeah, I love that point because I think I've definitely read articles and have been in certain situations where sometimes it feels easier to have, you know, when, when people have concerns, but there's this like culture of just positivity and sometimes it can become like toxic positivity where you're ignoring all of the potential red flags and- right you have that like sinking feeling internally, but like, you're like, oh, everything's gonna be fine. We're gonna figure it out. But to your point, and I think a huge part of that is just people feeling comfortable sharing and admitting, hey, I'm behind on this because of X, Y, Z. And knowing that that's not going to, that's actually a behavior you wanna encourage rather than it's going to reflect poorly on them. How did you as the leader in those situations influence culture in that way? What did you, what did you do specifically 
to get people well, I don't know if comfortable. I don't know if it was me specifically, but in the nuclear industry, that concept of raising issues and dealing with issues, uh, it was stressed for the enlightened organizations. It was stressed by management, upper management. It was stressed by the regulator. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, one thing I used to appreciate is that the regulator, they would respect an organization that self-identified issues and brought them to light and dealt with them. So if you're, if you're um, trusted by the regulator because you're doing the right thing, yeah, okay, that's something to let your team know is that this is an expectation that you are going to self, you have a questioning attitude and you're going to raise it and without fear of retaliation or you know you got to let you got to you got to create that safe environment that they know that that's yeah. expected. It's yeah. not a bad thing. It's expected to raise raise issues and get them dealt with. So that was something that was not just me, but throughout the organizations I worked in, which were several, over time, that concept kept getting stronger and stronger and stronger of self-identifying, solve your own problems. You know, we, used to, we used to tell people if, if um, we have, a, obviously it's nuclear power, it's a very strong quality assurance department. These are independent people who look over your shoulder and make sure it's right for you. To me, that was failure. If problems that they found, I'd say, why didn't we find it? Mm. Okay, and the whole organization tried to live to that. As time went on, it gets stronger and stronger. I think that helps. I think that helped a lot. It sounds like that's like the ideal way that, you know, regulation like that should work. Like it should inspire organizations to always want to do the right thing and always focus on improving and getting better at identifying problems and and potential issues to keep people. Yes. So let me tell you some of the downsides of that. Okay. Um, like anything, you can go too far. Right. Okay. <laughs> um, and one of the things that was a consequence of raising issues, like write it down. We, there was, we had forms you'd fill out, you'd write it down. This is my issue. And you submit it into the organization. And this goes above the first line supervisor. This is for the whole organization to see. Well, now you got to deal with it. <laughs> yeah. So... That's work. So let's say Harry has a job. He's, he's doing this engineering, working on this engineering product, and he discovers a problem. It might not even be his problem, but he discovers a problem. He dutifully writes it down and submits it. Says, we got this problem. Let's fix it. Well, nine times out of ten, since Harry knows the most about the problem, in addition to still finishing his work, he's asked to help solve the problem. So it's yeah. adding a burden. It, it puts more work on people. Yeah. You know, even uh, so how to manage that, how to find the resources to deal with this blossoming questioning attitude was, uh, <laughs> was another challenge. Yeah. It's funny as you're saying it, it sounds exactly like when I worked at the startup that we were just growing out the support team. And when I brought on people and we started filing bugs for the engineering team and it was like, okay, cool. You're finding problems, but like, <laughs> we have a roadmap. We have to build this with this software product for our customers. And I feel like it's the same um, high level theme there, obviously very different applications, but it's like you have expectations right. of what an engineer is going to get done to make 
a project work or like a sprint, you know, get, get a feature exactly. built in, in the software. But when you're finding those like hidden little bugs that are, that are like causing problems for customers too, like what's the right balance there. And exactly. And that now has, what, yeah. Yeah. So I, as much as I, it, I can identify the pluses and the minuses, I became a believer in that though. I think the net gain was better than the burden. And especially because um, of what you lessons learned. Mm. The, the, one, of the, one of the things in our process was you don't just, unless it's very low level issue that doesn't need any kind of investigation, then those who just find and fix, find and fix, find and fix, they didn't have any real issues. But if it was something that had some uh, significance or had some uh, likelihood of repeating itself or, or, or you found similar issues multiple times, then we'd dig in and not just fix it, but get to the cause mm. and then fix the process so that it doesn't happen again. So the fact that you could continually get better through this self-reporting process, I think is was the real benefit of that. Uh, yeah. or one of the big benefits of that. And I think organizations, at least in my business, they, the, a lot of them kept getting better and better and better because um, they go after those things and they'd fix it so that it didn't return or hopefully didn't return. Uh, change the procedure, change training, change a design feature, you know, whatever it took once you get to the real cause so that it doesn't happen again. And then it kind of all made it worthwhile to, to some extent. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think in so many things, it's, it's so important to understand the root cause. Times when you do get to that level, the fix is much more substantial than like a small little Band-Aid, right? And so I think people are afraid of uncovering <laughs> what exactly. that is. But to your point, that has been that is where real, real like process, procedural change that will in the future, it's almost like, you know, that saying of just like planting the tree so you can sit under the, the shade in the future. Like it's going right. <laughs> to take a lot of time, but like if the payoff is going to be there. It's just, but I totally agree. It's a culture thing. It's a, it's, you have to have leaders yes. who see the value in spending the time there for people around them to be motivated to do it. Because, you know, if, if, if it's not valued, if, if the people who are actually doing the work and fixing the problems don't feel like their efforts are going to be worth something, especially on like a really hard, potentially, you know, not fun type of project, like it, you know, why would they right. do it? It has to be part of the organizational culture. Yeah. 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 Culture is something that um, I, I created <clears throat> quite an interest in as time went on. Uh, going from project to project, having different people, different different stakeholders from project to project, I, I realized that the culture in the team kept changing and it wasn't always a good culture. <laughs> you know, so you had to, every project uh, I learned became more important to, to set the right culture, set the right expectations, set the right norms. And so I spent a lot of time trying to figure that out how to mm -hmm. do it better. I don't know if I ever got good at it, but telling stories, ex 
providing examples to people, getting people together and stressing what's important. And there's other thing that was one of my favorites was called the ladder of accountability. Hmm. It's in books. I, I forget exactly where it's, it's everywhere. Basically, we used to say, are you above the line or are you below the line? You might have heard me say this in the past. But. <laughs> so if you're, if you're above the line, then you're accountable. You're accepting reality, facing facts. You're owning it. You know, you're, you're owning it and you're, and you're, and you're responsible. If you're below the line, then you're in denial. You know, you're, <laughs> you're waiting and hoping. Okay. That like those problems that don't get better. You're waiting and hoping. We try to encourage everybody to recognize that, that everybody operates on a spectrum. We all yeah. go below the line once in a while. <laughs> okay. Yeah. We vent, you know, we, we blame others. That's below the line. Okay. Yeah. But making people aware of it and stressing that we really want organization success happens when you're above the line. When the whole, all the people are above the line, you're going to have more success because people are owning it, dealing with the issues and getting it done. It's a good message. It's hard. It's hard because there are a lot of, there are a lot of stresses that make you want to go below the line. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I like that. And I like how easy of a visual that is to even imagine, you know, right. and to, and to place yourself above or below and knowing, Hey, our shared goal means that we all collectively need to be more above the line than below like that. I right. don't know. I, I feel like I wish I knew that a couple of years ago. <laughs> like, I, that's such an easy framework. I hope people use that. Yeah. So the other, the other thing is trust. Um, yeah. You mentioned that one. Yeah. yeah. I keep coming back to that because it took me a while and I, I had some great mentors and uh, several of them have spent time with me one-on-one -on -one time with me trying to break me of my tendency to step in or do it myself and no reflection on them. I never really did well at, with that. I, I, I always, I was always probably too, too hands-on. And, and then this, in fact, one time, and in fact, it was, it was even people that I really trusted, <laughs> but maybe I didn't. I thought, you know, I thought I did, but uh, there was one guy who was very experienced fellow. I had no reason not to trust him. And I, apparently I didn't realize I was stepping in his turf. Mm. And until one day, he told me over the phone that he's incensed by my attitude, <laughs> absolutely incensed. And I actually had to go look it up. I didn't know what, what, what incensed <laughs> meant at the time. And uh, it, it really stuck with me because it, it meant I was, here's a guy that I respected, a person that was a great performer, but I was poking in on his territory and I shouldn't have. Yeah. And, uh, it, I think it, it hurt us professionally. Uh, you know, I think he lost respect in, because I wasn't doing my job. I was too worried about his job. And uh, yeah. so that was a big lesson for me uh, as well. Yeah, I think that speaks to how sometimes people can tell you what you should do. But I think a lot of the time we learn when we see the impact of what we're doing, right? Like, it took that person giving you that feedback, which obviously was, you know, <laughs> strong, strong feedback and, and language, but like you needed to, you kind of needed to hear it to like learn, whoa, okay, I have to back off. This is really negatively impacting this person who's really good at their job. And exactly, you know, it's that message. But I also, I think 
one interesting thing I'd love for you to speak on too is in your role as project manager, you were not technically those engineers, you know, direct supervisors who were giving them, at least correct me if I'm wrong, you weren't like giving them their performance reviews and deciding directly like their career path and trajectory. You were sort of that person who was leading without being in charge. And I, and I think that theme is something that comes up, especially when you're earlier in your career, when you maybe aren't in that formal leadership role, but you want to, you want to, you know, influence something. What are some of the ways that you, you built that trust with those people and influence the culture and your project success? It really depends on the organization you're in, the structure, the overall organizational structure that you're in, Mm. uh, that defines the power and authority of a project manager. So, and I've been in a couple different settings, but the one I spent the most of my time in, and probably enjoyed the most, was the one that was a call I would call a project-centric organization. <clears throat> so the project has the power, so to speak, but they don't have they don't have people power. They don't have, but they have the they have the organizational focus that you're going to support this project. So all the departments, whether it be an engineering department or a quality department, or a construction department, they all provide people to the project, and the project sets up its own organization. And within that organization, it's got engineers and construction and quality and, and accounting and what, whatnot. So they all, they're all on the project, but they're deployed from the department that they come from. And their salary, and, and when the project's over, they go back to the to their headquarters, so to speak, and then get redeployed to another project. So their real career future, the individual's career future is not the project, it's the home office that's the home group that's deploying them to multiple projects. Mm. Uh, and so that that worked well because number one, if a, if a, if a project manager was having issues with a, with a team member or you don't have to deal with it yourself, <laughs> you could just go to the <laughs> to the department and say, we've got this problem, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so from a person like me that I like that. Okay. <laughs> you didn't have to confront so, anyone. <laughs> so from your, it's not helpful to what you're trying to get at. So my, my approach was avoidance. I guess. <laughs> uh, if you're in a, if you're in a different type of an organization, which I was briefly where the project manager was like a clerk mm-hmm. and it was the, it was the line departments that would, had all the power. I hated that. That was, awful. <laughs> that was awful. But I did have to practice some of those skills that you might be trying to, trying to get at where you don't have any power, but you're trying to get a job, get a job done. Yeah. And uh, you know, I, I think they're building a rapport. You know, it's, you're not really, you know, they know you're going to come and go you're a project manager, there's a million of them around and there'll be, some, there'll be another one tomorrow. But you have to support them. You see, you have to listen to them, you have to support them. You have to get them